News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All of these deals have a fair bit of risk involved. So what steps are being taken? What protections are built into them to make sure that we don't invest a ton of money and ultimately gain nothing from that relationship? That's a Dalhousie University professor named Matthew Herter. There's some troubling details that are now emerging about a failed partnership between Canadian and Chinese scientists working to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. Turns out the partnership fell apart when the Chinese company failed to deliver samples for testing in Canada. But the vaccines were developed from the research that was reportedly used on Chinese soldiers in November. So joining us to kind of untangle this whole mess is Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what do we know about this? How did this all get started? Well, this all got started uh, for the purposes of our COVID, uh, our hopes of developing a COVID vaccine in Canada when a uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau endorsed this deal between CanSino Biologics and Canada's National Research Council. Now, CanSino has a, a lot of uh, scientists that are born in, in China, but trained and uh, rose to great heights in the biopharma industry in Canada. They uh, went back, a number of them went back to China in 2009 and set up this company that has become really a world leader and based very much on the Canadian technology that, uh, that they accessed in Canada. So let's jump forward to this deal with uh, CanSino. And uh, they were supposed to use our technology, build their uh, vaccine in China with the Chinese military, uh, and uh, ship the vaccine to Canada so that we could test it here, approve it, and uh, mass-produce it, hopefully. But in the summer, uh, Chinese officials at a very high level blocked the vaccine. And so really what that means is uh, Canada was left uh, with, with nothing for this partnership. And clearly Canada invested a lot of money mm-hmm. and hope in, in trying to have Canadians at the front of the line. If we could produce a, a vaccine in our uh, factories, really, in Montreal. And now, as we know, we're sort of, it looks like we're at the middle or, or, or farther back in the line. So we did this partnership. We did- the work and then they ended up using it and we don't get it that's the really surprising thing uh the experts we talked to that are in security intelligence uh say this was pretty foreseeable uh look the 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 leaders of this company in China are part of a Chinese government recruiting program. While they were living and working in Toronto, they were meeting with Chinese officials and uh, the program is called the Thousand Talents Plan. Uh, According to Western intelligence, it's not necessarily that espionage happens always in this program, but it is very open to information intelligence collection. So these talented researchers certainly would have been targeted by uh, Chinese uh, agencies that, that really want to bring home that great research from North America to China to benefit their industry. And so, uh, again, where we are is that the Chinese military from June has been getting dosed up on CanSino's vaccine. Their CEO said in November that it's been very successful for military personnel in China. And again, Canada, nothing to show for it. So one of our experts said, uh, look, Canada has been burned before in these collaborations uh, with scientists that work in this Chinese government recruiting program. So then why do we keep on doing it if we have burned, been burned before? Well, that that's the question we actually heard uh, 
in a way, we heard in on Parliament Hill yesterday, the Conservative government, uh, they had no idea of our deep dive into this story, but they were asking, why, why did we partner with uh, a company that is clearly under the influence of the Chinese Communist Party? Could we have foreseen that, you know, we put all our eggs in this basket and uh, nothing came of it? If you ask me why, why we keep doing this, um, uh, the experts say that really it's a, a situation where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing in Canada's government. We've seen a number of contracts with companies that have clearly have national security concerns, yet they go through. Is there anything nefarious there, or is it just uh, naivety or worse? Um, I think we're going to... People in Ottawa want to right. study that problem more. That's clear. Has there been any response, though, from the Canadian government on this? Well, we've heard uh, Prime Minister Trudeau answer uh, these challenges uh, in Parliament and essentially say we we did make a deal and uh, unfortunately... uh it fell through, but uh, I don't. I don't hear the government really accepting any blame on that front. And they say we, they, the government has made a number of deals with other companies, and uh, Canadians will have to wait, but they will get their their vaccine doses. Hmm. We'll see about that. All right, Sam. Thank you. Thanks, Timmy. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. For more on this story, check out globalnews.ca. But certainly a lot of questions are, what's the point of making a deal if the product isn't going to be delivered and the other side is still going to use the product? Why is there no follow-up on that? Well, we'll be hearing more about it, I'm sure. This is Mornings with Simi. So more and more we are hearing about countries that are putting in place their plans for distributing a COVID-19 vaccine. Very welcome news, right? Because even a couple of months ago, it was starting to look like, oh man, how long are we going to have to wait for this thing? But now we're getting into the nitty gritty of how it is going to work. Take a look at what's happening in Denmark, for instance. They are hoping to administer doses before the end of the year. So they're putting their plan in place. The UK, as we heard in the news, they could start getting, uh, people there could start getting the Pfizer vaccine seen as early as next week. In Canada, we're continuing to wait to find out when vaccines will be available here and who is going to get it first. Well, we thought we'd let's talk about what's going on over in Europe right now. So former CKW reporter, now freelancing in Denmark, Shane Woodford, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So tell me what, first of all, what have the COVID-19 caseloads been like uh, the last couple of days in Denmark? Uh, not good. On Saturday, they recorded the highest number of daily infection number yet at uh, just over 1,600 cases. It dipped a little on Sunday, and then uh, Monday through today, we've seen it sort of creep up from the 1,100 range up into the 1,400 range, uh, and today it's 1,500 and change. So uh, not good. The infection pressure here is largely in the Copenhagen metro area, and there was a number of new restrictions that were announced yesterday. Interestingly enough, targeting youth because they're seeing specifically in the Copenhagen area, they're seeing most of the new infections are uh, in the age groups of 15 to 25 years of age. So they've come down uh, on a number of ways in trying to uh, get that particular situation turned around. Okay. So yet they're still talking about, you know, getting vaccines in place, right? They're making plans. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They've announced a two-phase vaccination plan. Uh, so uh, the first phase will involve people who have, uh, you know, health complications. Maybe they got an immune system that's compromised, that kind of thing. Uh, so people at higher risk of COVID, uh, seniors, obviously, and frontline health staff. That'll all be involved in phase one. We even know where they're going to get vaccinated. Denmark is going to vaccinate nurses and doctors and health staff uh, in their workplace. 
Uh, seniors will benefit from in-home vaccinations and some mobile vaccination clinics, and they're going to go out and target, uh, as I said, those at risk in, in varying ways as well. Once those groups are fully vaccinated, uh, and as well, once COVID vaccine begins to arrive in higher numbers, we're going to see a little bit at first, but not as much to cover everybody off, obviously. Uh, then the general population semi will be phase two, and that will be run out of sort of regionalized centers. It sounds like right now they're going to use what is existing as far as the COVID testing centers to actually administer the vaccine. Right. They're setting up an online appointment process to get that done. But the numbers, as you said, still stay fairly high with COVID-19. So what have people been like in terms of, you know, the restrictions? Are they obeying? Are they paying attention? Like, why are the numbers still so high? Yeah, I mean, there are, of course, a tiny percentage of people in Denmark like everyone else who uh, view this thing as, as a hoax and that kind of stuff. The numbers of those people aren't as large as some other places. Uh, we're seeing, as you and I have talked about uh, a number of times in the past, we're seeing young people who just, you know, for whatever reason, they're just not dialed in like that. Maybe there's a sense of, you know, immunity there or, uh, or whatever. Maybe it's the social aspect of just wanting to get out with their friends Schools probably playing a little bit of a role. Uh, university party life is probably playing a little bit of a role. The nightlife in the city is probably playing a little mm. bit of a role. Uh, but it is the young people. And so, as I said, they've brought in restrictions uh, targeting youth in the 17 Copenhagen metro municipalities. And this will be kind of mind-blowing for people in your neck of the woods, Simi, but uh, they have launched a testing effort between now and Christmas, and they want to test every single person in the Copenhagen metro area between the ages of 15 and 25 before Christmas Day. So they're wow. doing a, a municipality by municipality. The health minister called it a caravan. It's going to start in one municipality, and it is going to roll through with the goal of getting every single young person tested. Okay, so that's in Denmark. What's happening in other countries? Yeah, we're seeing sort of an up and down thing in other countries. A lot, the infection rate continues to drop, except for a handful hungry uh, posted their highest number of infections the other day. Uh, but what we're seeing more and more now, Simi, is the higher number of deaths. So Germany recorded its highest daily deaths the other day. Uh, we're seeing other countries that are sort of towing the line between the highest number, but still very high levels of deaths. So cases going down, uh, deaths are going up. And as we know, that it's kind of a laggard step, right? Once your infections go up, we've seen that all over the place, starting with the United States in the second wave. The infections skyrocketed and then deaths didn't so much. And then about a week or two later, they started to really, really climb. And now we're seeing that in Europe where the infection wave came up. It looks like so far, fingers crossed, that wave is crested and we're on the downside now. But deaths are just coming in behind that and they're still building and haven't quite fallen yet. Right. We know that in the UK, they've been having lockdowns and, you know, they're just starting to emerge from all that. But what about other countries in terms of lockdowns? Yeah, there's a whole number of countries here in the EU that are under lockdown, from Germany to Austria. Uh, there's countries that just have wall-to-wall restrictions, like Italy, uh, to a yeah. degree, Spain, depending where you live there. I mean, it's, and again, from a travel perspective, I mean, nobody's going anywhere in the European Union. I mean, there might be some business travel and a little bit of other travel, careful travel to see family, that kind of thing. But the uh, sheer volume and the idea of just like, oh, I'm going to go to Germany today or I'm going to go to Norway for that holiday next week just simply doesn't exist here. Like people are really, really staying put at Staycation Central here. So that is also kind of helping out a little bit. And I think once the vaccinations start to come in, yeah. uh, European Union, I believe, is going to make a decision on uh, the Pfizer vaccine on December 29th and the Moderna vaccine on January 12th. And the EU is tied up about between the two. We're looking at almost 500 million doses 
Uh, so assuming that they're going to go a yes on Pfizer because the UK already has, right. uh, and then a yes on Moderna, which is probably pretty likely we're going to see uh, vaccinations begin, and then they'll really ramp up in earnest uh, in the new year. But there's also going to be some complications there because we're going to have a hodgepodge of different vaccines who may operate or work differently, and the health systems are going to be challenged to determine, okay, your initial dose was this, your initial dose was that, so we need to do this for you and that for you. So there's still a lot of logistical headaches ahead. Right. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thank you very much for that, Shane. As always, a pleasure. Stay safe. You too. That's Shane Woodford. I used to be a CKNW reporter. Now he freelances in Denmark, talking about how in that country, they're already um, hoping to administer doses before the end of the year. They're rolling out their plan, essentially, for vaccinations, even where you're going to be able to get vaccinated, who is going to get it first. And I know this is information that a lot of people here in Canada and British Columbia are clamoring for. We're still waiting to hear it. I should mention that Premier John Horgan does have a media availability this afternoon, and I think you will be hearing about that because I know that you know reporters are going to ask questions that if all these other jurisdictions are now working on this, where are our plans for this? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with our Nikki Wright-Meyer this morning to focus on something a little more positive. I think we all could use that. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this time yesterday, we were we were right into Pledge Day. Oh, yes. And it was a success. In the end, they raised uh, $1.3 million as of the total for yesterday. But then today, they'll take a look at all the online donations. So with so many people donating online this year, because it was a virtual event, after all, they're expecting that figure could climb a little bit higher today. Okay, so it was good. It was very, you, know, you never know what you're going to get when you're holding a telethon in a pandemic, right? Yes. I mean, certainly it was a bit of an unusual event for me. It was an unusual event for you, for everybody who was organizing it. In fact, yesterday I gave Sarah Dubois Phillips a phone call. She's the executive director of the CKNW Kids Fund and does such you know great work and puts so much effort into making Pledge Day happen. So once the dust settled last night, I, I gave her a phone call and she said, yeah, you know, this was a really unusual Pledge Day for her. She was answering the phones and typically, you know, she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off on yes. the day of Pledge Day making sure everything's working accordingly, she doesn't typically answer the phones because normally we have a big panel to do that. But she said that talking to people who phoned in yesterday actually made the day more memorable for her. Pledge Day was actually incredibly special and in that I really feel like I connected with people who are so supportive of the Kids Fund and which once was the Orphan's Fund. I mean, I spoke to people who literally have been giving for 40 years, and they all actually had a story, and they all wanted to tell me what a difference the Kids Fund has made. Maybe not so much personally, but they had an anecdote of like a relative or a friend and what it means to them. And I think right now we're entering into the holiday season, and we're all sort of you know, shut in and we're all kind of feeling sorry for ourselves. What I realized is that the gift of this pandemic is that we all get to reset and realize what's important to us. You know, giving is really what's important. Community is what is important. And looking out for one another is what's important. So for me, as an executive director of a charity that does such incredible work, I'm I just feel very grateful and privileged because 
you know, everyone can make a difference. I got $5 donations. I got $50,000 donations. But every dollar makes a difference. So I feel we all should feel good uh, about today. It was an amazing day. There's so many people I want to thank, Nikki, so I... (laughs) I don't know where to start. (laughs) It's true, though. There was so many wonderful people who helped put Pledge Day together and so many wonderful people who donated money to the CKNW Kids Fund. Now, for anyone who may be just hearing this conversation right now and they'd still like to donate some money to the Kids Fund today or tomorrow or all through next year, how can someone go about doing that? Well, you know, again, I think they can just go to our website and donate online, um, cknwkidsfund.com. They can call us, not obviously the pledge number, but um, my number is also online as well. And any amount makes a difference. And we have so many incredible supporters. And I, I have to just give a huge shout out to all of the hosts and the producers, the board, everybody that contributed to making today such a success, but most of all to our listeners and these people that are so loyal to the Kids Fund. It really has been a very special day. And I think that 2020 has been challenging, but we should just move forward in a positive way and realize that 2021 can only be better. Sarah, thank you so much for the work that you do for the Kids Fund. It's really incredible. Well, thank you, Nikki. And you know what? Thank you so much for taking the time to call me and to ask me about today. It means a lot. Thank you so much. That was so nice to hear because I know Sarah is so busy on the day of, right? Like you said, she's rushing around and rushing around. Uh, And I just love the fact that people really remembered us yesterday. Mm -hmm. that it was a special day for so many people and we appreciate everyone's donations getting us to that incredible total of at least 1.3 million dollars i mean thank you thank you thank you to all of the listeners who donated and who have supported the kids fund over the years and we say at least because final total's not in yet we don't know what's going to happen with that so we'll keep you posted on that i'm nikki thank you that's our nikki reitmeyer of course and thank you to everyone who phoned in or uh, donated online to the to the cknw kids fund pledge day yesterday they couldn't do it without you and we love hearing all those great stories out there this is mornings with simi couple of stories that are going to be coming up in the news today that I thought were really interesting. It's one having to do with these crazy rising condo strata insurance prices. We've covered this extensively, and it is a huge burden to so many stratas out there, therefore condo owners as well. So I thought it interesting to see, and you can read this story on globalnews.ca, that BC insurers have now agreed to end a practice called Best Terms Pricing. So this is a practice that has apparently contributed to these skyrocketing condo insurance rates. So what happens is multiple insurers each agree to submit, you know, their own bid to carry a portion of the insurance for a strata or for a building. But get this, the final premium that the strata has to pay is usually based on the highest bid not the even though like some of the other bids might be lower, even though all of the others might be substantially lower, the practice is, well, we'll just take the most expensive one. 
Now, that makes no sense at all, but that's what's actually been happening. And so now they've agreed to end that practice, I'm sure, under threat of legislation because the BC government was getting ready to step in on this. But that just, this is why the insurance industry has such a bad reputation. They do stuff like that that doesn't make any sense to the average person. And now they're ending it, hopefully, that will provide some relief to strata insurance uh, issues out there. But you know what? We're going to be talking more about that. Right now, another story that has caught our attention in the news this morning has to do with TransLink. They're having IT issues, but it has resulted in the suspension of certain forms of payment. So we thought, let's find out more about that and what the heck is going on here. Uh, Global News reporter Andrea McPherson joins us now with more. Good morning, Andrea. Hey, good morning, Simi. Okay, what is going on with this? So we're down at the Broadway commercial SkyTrain system. This is uh, impacting the, the whole system, basically. It has to do with what TransLink is calling a suspicious network activity that's been detected. They're not going so far as to call it a hack, but it's led to multiple services being disabled. Okay, so what does that mean for people then trying to pay or even trying to get on transit today? Right. So we know the problem started yesterday. Um a global source actually told us TransLink's entire database was breached Monday night. And what it means this morning, TransLink users can't use uh, credit or debit cards, just cash at the Compass vending machines. You also can't tap your credit cards to get through the fare gates. I've been watching a couple people this morning trying to do exactly that, then kind of look up, look confused, go over to the vending machine. That's where it says cash only. So hopefully they have some cash on them to be able to pay for, you know, their trip to get to where they need to go. Um, TransLink has tweeted this morning, it's still working to try to resolve this issue, but we still have no indication as to when that's going to happen and when things are going to start to get back to normal here. Well, that's a bummer for a lot of commuters out there because, I mean, really, who carries cash these days, right? I I do not. Exactly. I don't know. I, I don't know either. I don't carry cash either. <laughs> so essentially, Andrea, in, so this is an indefinite problem. And so people need to know this morning, if they're heading for transit, have some cash to pay your fare for your compass card, or if, if you don't have a compass card. Yes. And the also thing, uh, the other thing I should mention too, is their trips planner uh, online um, uh, formula that they use when, when people, you know, plan their trips to get around. That's also impacted by uh, this suspicious network activity. So they're saying use uh, Google Maps for the time being until this gets resolved as well. But basically, carry cash and maybe plan a little bit of extra time to get around. Uh, where we are right now this morning, it's not too terribly busy, but you know as the morning wears on and people start to get right. to where they need to go, it is it is going to pick up. Well, none of that sounds very reassuring. Andrea, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Andrew McPherson, Global News reporter, talking about these TransLink payment issues this morning. I mean, that doesn't sound very good, does it? They're having suspicious IT activity, so they've suspended some forms of payment, meaning if you're used to getting on, you know, SkyTrain or the bus by tapping your credit card, which, by the way, was um, a great way to do that, uh, you can't do that this morning. You'll have to have cash or, you know, use a Compass card. But cash is going to be tricky for a lot of people, I would imagine. And so, yeah, they're warning people to watch out for that. And they don't have a timeline for when that might actually get better. So we will continue to follow that story. Any updates on it, we'll let you know. But just beware if you're going to be using transit today and need to pay for something. It's never a good sign when a company tells you, don't use our website, just use Google. Not a good sign when that happens, but we'll keep you updated in the news on that. Up next, we've heard the federal government with their fiscal update this week. What does that 
that mean for support for really hard-hit sectors like tourism? We're going to talk to a federal cabinet minister about that coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. So we got that economic statement, the fiscal update from the federal government this week. There was a lot, I think, of expectation, a lot of industries hoping to hear something for them, including the airline industries. But what we mainly heard there was money for businesses to extend wage and rent subsidies and as well some support for the tourism and hospitality sectors. But how is all that going to shake out? Well, let's talk about that now. Joining us is Federal Employment Minister Carla Qualtro. Thank you for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. It's nice to speak with you. Uh, Let's talk about that help for the tourism and hospitality industries. What is it that the federal government is prepared to do at this point? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we know how hard hit this industry, tourism, hospitality uh, events has been hit. And we also know that it's probably going to be one of the last Uh, sectors to recover fully because at the end of the day people aren't going to be going to events traveling what have you so we've put in place in addition to the broader measure so as you said increasing the wage subsidy increasing the commercial rent um, longer runway on the small loans we've put in place a 100% government-backed loan program for this industry um, with really competitive interest rates in order for businesses to stay afloat in these difficult times. Okay, so do how is that all going to be available? Like, how do businesses apply for that? How do organizations get involved in that? Really good question. So the other thing I should have mentioned, I apologize, there's just so much in yeah. this that it's hard to know which pieces to highlight. Um, we're creating a new regional development agency for BC, and I actually can't underestimate how important this is for our province. We've always had a Western uh, Canada uh, regional agency, but we've had to kind of share resources and priorities with the other Western Canadian provinces. Having our own RDA, and this is how these are going to be uh, delivered through, will allow us to have a really BC-tailored focus on investing in development here in the province. Okay. And what about the airline industries? Like, I know they were hoping for some help, but where's the federal government on that right now? Really good question and something that, you know, I hear all the time from constituents who are still looking at vouchers um, for thousands of dollars from airlines that they can't use. And it's frustrating. Um, Listen, we're in the process of negotiating with airline support for the sector on the condition that these uh, vouchers be refundable to Canadians. We're not going to invest in this sector if Canadians don't get their money back is basically the bottom line. Um, There's a lot more sophisticated negotiation going on in terms of how we support airports and how we keep, you know, remote communities connected through uh, essential routes, if you will, small regional routes. Um, But the bottom line for Canadians is... This is not a matter of investing in airlines with them not getting their money back. It will be a condition of any support we give. And the support will be in the form of loans um, with, with, again, competitive rates. But it'll be in the condition that Canadians, that everybody gets their money back if they want it. If you want to keep your voucher, keep it. But we need to make sure people get their money back. Okay, so that's still to come. But let's also talk about uh, student loans here. We know the moratorium on loan payments ended on September the 30th. But there have been reports of lots of issues for students who are trying to get more information or, you know, trying to get through to the call center and they can't do it. What is going on with that? 
Really, again, you know, the student loan moratorium was a really big deal. Six months without interest and without payments. That ended um, last month. And we are now in the process of working with students. We actually have quite a robust repayment assistance plan where students who haven't made a certain amount of money don't have to pay their amounts. We can negotiate smaller amounts. We're working. It hasn't been a very high profile program, but students who can't afford to pay their student loans um, are, are working with every single person. To your point, though, this means that more people are having to wait longer to get through yeah. and it's super frustrating. What we've done in the fast is invest in um, more, you know, Service Canada representatives. It's, it's kind of not very sexy government investments, but it means people will be able to get a hold of people they need to talk to to help them. And we have put a, you know, we stopped interest for student loans for two years. So we're going to get waive the interest for this year and next year, meaning that you'll have to pay the principal on your on your loan, but it'll be hundreds and hundreds of dollars of relief for students sometimes every month. Some people have smaller amounts every month. But the point being, this is a $300 million investment, so students don't have to put out that money. But I can't emphasize to me enough the repayment assistance plan because it's a hidden gem in this project program that people don't have to pay back their loans right away or in the amount that they're told if they can't afford it. And we want students to be able to have flexibility. For example, you don't have to start paying back your student loan until you earn $25,000 if you don't want to. So let's talk about that. Let's see, what are you earning? Maybe we can defer your payments until then. So we're working really, but there's so many people and there's so many programs that we're really doing our very best to help every single individual with every single um, situation they have. Right. So, I mean, the program may be great, but it's not great unless you can get somebody to answer some questions or, you know, deal with your personal situation. So you're saying that will get better people phoning in? Like, when will that be ramped oh, up? Absolutely. No, no, no. And it is getting better. Thousands more people have been hired, are being hired. We're automating more. We are trying to, you know, we're sending emails out to every single student loan saying, talk to your bank. Here's the questions. Here's what to tell your bank. Here's a piece of paper. Take this to your bank. Like we're trying to automate it as much as possible so people don't even have to call in. Um, But we want students to know that even this this, um, getting rid of interest for two years is going to help 1.4 million students not have to pay the interest portion. And it's not accumulating. It's just not there anymore. So there's no interest on these loans for two years. Um, and, you know, looking forward, depending on where things, this, this could be something that becomes permanent. All right. We'll see what happens. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. That's Carla Qualtro, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, also, of course, the MP for Delta, uh, talking about the government's fiscal update that came out this week. Yes, there's a lot in there for some tourism uh, and hospitality sectors. They did actually single out those sectors. In fact, the finance minister said, we know that business and tourism, hospitality, travel, arts and culture have been particularly hard hit. Uh, So they are creating more support, especially for the um, arts and live events industry. Um, There's more money for them. But again, if you're waiting for the airline situation, like are they going to guarantee that you get your money back and not just a voucher? What's going to happen with all of that? Because I think that affects a lot of people out there. Uh, That is something that is still to come. And I'm sure, you know, businesses still have their fair share of issues and things. And we want to see how these new programs work. The new wage subsidy kind of retooling that they did, the rent subsidy retooling that they did, that is just getting underway. Those portals have just opened, so we'll have to wait and see how successful or not that is for businesses out there. And if you'd like to tell me how it's going for you, have you had any luck with this new portal? Uh, What are you planning to do? What kind of support do you need? Email me, simi at cknw.com. 
This is Mornings with Simi. So we can't really say it enough right now, but we want to emphasize that idea of buying local. I know that people are out there shopping for Christmas, for holidays, for whatever, just buying gifts. Just please make sure you consider buying local as opposed to some huge multinational conglomerate. And now we know that a lot of efforts are being made by local businesses as well to entice you to do just that. This is Buy Local Week, and we wanted to make it even easier for you to find some local retailers to support out there. So joining us now is Greg Holmes, the Executive Director of the Shipyards District on the North Shore. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Timmy. How are you? I'm very well, and you? I am good, thank you. Uh, I saw that um, you know the Lower Lonsdale BIA is certainly making a lot of efforts to attract some shoppers. How's that been going? Yeah, we think we are. It's been going well. Um, honestly, I think consumers are are in the right frame of mind to shop local. They're just looking for uh, the tools and the sites to direct them to those businesses, and, and we're doing what we can to help them with that. Okay, and what kind of incentives are you offering up for people? Well, there's all sorts of promotions, of course, but the, really the incentive at the end of the day is to, you know, to enjoy wonderful products and services while supporting small businesses that live and work in your community. Okay. Is it like, do, what do they want? Like, what's it going to take, do you think, to get people? Is it convenience? Like, what are they looking for? Well, it is convenience, you know, and we, we all know, and I'm, I'm probably not different from many that I've done my shopping online. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it, people need to get out a bit and put a bit more effort into supporting local businesses. Perhaps it's not going to be easier, but the dividends are far greater. And I really think that's what's often lost in the mix is it's not just transactional for small businesses. I mean, small business owners are people that live and work in your community and their kids may go to your school and they support local soccer teams through charities and fundraisers and, and items like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important to get out there and support them, not just for the, the most obvious reason. And it may take a little bit more effort uh, to find out what businesses uh, are out there that require your support. Right. And you know what? I think people are willing to make that effort right now. They just need to be reminded sometimes. Um, and what about the way local businesses have pivoted? Like, are they offering more options too? They they are based on uh, their ability. I mean, small businesses, they don't have the same sort of supply chains and and resources that, you know, larger corporations, multinationals or franchises would have. But yeah, they, they've been able to pivot quite a bit. Those businesses, certainly in the shipyards district that have been able to go online, uh, or partner up with other businesses, which isn't uncommon, have done that. Um, so th- they're doing the best they can, but they have limited resources. So really, it's 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 about the local people within that community, um, you know, determining what yeah. businesses they want to support, where they regularly go, and still go there, purchase gift cards, uh, do what you can, because um, if you don't, during these most important critical winter months, uh, you know, your favorite coffee shop or bookstore may simply not be there in March or February when you're prepared to go back. Well, that's a good reminder. All right, Greg, thank you. Thank, thank you. And if I can put one, one last yep. plug in, Simi, because with the Shipyards District, we've created a fantastic digital holiday gift guide, and it is simply at theshipyardsdistrict.ca. You'll find everything you want in a wonderful uh, and transformative community. I love it. Okay, thank you, Greg. 
Thank you, Timmy. That's Greg Holmes, Executive Director of the Lower Lonsdale Business Improvement Association, just one of the uh, neighborhood business improvement organizations out there that are trying to entice shoppers to come to their area and make essentially suggesting to you, please, please buy local. It's not a huge sacrifice. You're going to be buying some stuff anyway. It might require, as Greg points out, just a little bit more work, you know, a little bit more, you would say, I guess, inconvenience to go out of your way to drive somewhere instead of having it delivered to you. But the pay off on that is really so remarkable. You are helping your community by doing so. This is Mornings with Simi. Faith is not a building, that it's not about Sunday mornings, but it's about every day and how we connect with each other and how we support each other. Faith is not a building. I like that. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the disappointment of the number of, you know, religious places, churches, temples, what have you, that have continued to defy COVID-19 public health orders and hold in-person gatherings and religious services over that past weekend. And what's even more, I think, disappointing is the number who claim they're going to be doing it again this weekend. And you wonder why. Like, there are churches and other religious institutions out there that are doing the right thing, and they are talking. We wanted to highlight some of them this morning, in particular, a faith community in Kamloops that has found a way to continue offering services and counseling and doing their good work. So, joining us now is Johnny Strutt, lead pastor at Motion Church in Kamloops. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, thanks for having us. And I know you've done a lot of work in kind of building your community during this time. What has that involved? How do you hold services now? Well, we uh, our services are broadcast live stream, and so we put them on uh, Facebook, YouTube, and then we have an online church platform that's pretty interactive, and um, we have hosts on there that are ready to pray with people uh, whenever they jump in on the chat line or make a comment or anything like that. So uh, that's been a good... Uh, it's been a, a tough, a quick, but a good pivot, and it's enabled us to stay connected. Was that something that you did like way back at the beginning of the pandemic starting? Is that something you developed over time? <laughs> well, uh, interestingly, we had planned to begin live streaming our services uh, from March 15th, and we had that plan for months, and that just happened to end up being the day that nobody could have predicted, but that we ended up being shut down and forced to go online. So, so it worked out okay for us. But how has your congregation responded to that? Um, many of them are online, and we also have a number of small groups. I think there's 47 or 48 groups, uh, small groups that, that usually meet in homes. Uh, now that we can't meet in homes either, um, at least we still have the network that can take care and call and check in on people. And so uh, so that's been a good thing. And we have the same thing. We've got groups with our young people. I think there's nearly 20 small groups of youth and junior highs. And so they do the same thing within that network, just right. checking in on them, making sure everybody's okay. Yeah, we know that faith is so important in difficult times then, Pastor Strutt. How has your community uh, responded? Like, do you have the people who complain? Do you have the people who don't like it? How has your community responded? Uh, well, nobody's happy about this pandemic, uh, including me, but um, but you have to find a way to get through it, and that's what leaders do. So um, you can actually grow through this and find some new ways of uh, creatively reaching out into the community also, and we've done 
uh, found some great ideas of how to do that also. So you got to find a silver lining. Yeah. Is that drawn more people, do you think, to the Motion Church? Well, it certainly made it accessible to many others who, who maybe wouldn't come to a church building before. Uh, but having said that, there are many who don't have great access to technology. And out here, um, we do have some people that live rurally, and online access is not uh, quite as easy for them. And then, of course, the senior population who uh, some of them don't even have computers. So it, it has, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend that everything is great. It is, it is a challenge, and we really, you know, we need to get back together. So that's important also. Right. So what are your plans for doing that? Uh, well, we need to, um, you know, we need to make sure that we have the go-ahead from Dr. Bonnie Henry before we do that. But um, but in the meantime, we just try to do what we can to stay connected. Right. And, uh, you know, lots of great ideas for connecting with families. We delivered an Advent activity kit to every family with kids, uh, hand-delivered to the door, contactless, of course. We're delivering mm-hmm. a gingerbread manger kit to every church family the week before Christmas. We're writing out 850 Christmas cards for every senior in long-term care in our city. Nice. Um, all kinds of ways that we can do things that maybe we hadn't thought of doing before, So, but you have to get creative. Yeah, I like that. So then, Pastor Stratt, what do you think when you hear of churches who say, we're not going to listen to the health orders and we're still going to gather? You know, I I, I personally don't agree with it, but I, I don't know. I, I don't want to step out and judge because I don't know the challenges that they're dealing with. Maybe they don't have the access to do online. I, I just don't know. It, this has been extremely difficult for everyone, and uh, I'm really glad that we've been able to to do what we've been able to do here. So, Does it allow you, though, to also ask of your congregation to, to, like, as you say, we have to dig down here because sometimes it's difficult and challenging to find community, but sometimes we have to work harder. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I have to answer the question to our congregation many times, well, why can't we meet when I go up to Costco and it's packed and Walmart is packed and the restaurants are packed and how come we're not allowed to meet? We're safer than any of those places. So it's those questions are being asked all the time and it's, you know, trying to keep people positive through this is a big challenge, but it's one that, uh, that we're happy to do because we want to keep as many safe as possible. And I believe we can grow through this and come out stronger and that the church can be a bright light to people of hope, especially in the middle of a dark season. But what do you tell people then when they do say that to you about, yeah, I can go to Costco, I can go to the other places. What do you say back to them? It's the way it is right now. And so we're going to do everything that we can to stay safe. And, but our battle is not a political battle. Our, our, you know, our challenge is to reach people that don't, uh, that really need hope in the middle of a season like this. And that is something that we're uniquely challenged and uh, uniquely positioned to do as the church um, is to get people's minds and eyes off of uh, off of this challenge and onto something that that really has a lot more hope, and especially in a season like Christmas. Right, time to focus on the hopeful side. Um, Pastor Strutt, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's Johnny Strutt. He's the lead pastor at Motion Church in Kamloops. They are going out of their way, working extra hard, as you heard him say, to oh, you know, essentially follow 
Dr. Bonnie Henry and provincial health officials orders about not, not gathering, not having religious gatherings. It's challenging. You know, he was very honest about that, but he said, you know, it's bigger than that. We have to follow along and they have to try to set a good example. Um, unfortunately, that's not always the case with other places of worship. We're hearing more and more about that. Uh, it is challenging. It is difficult, but that is what faith is to sustain you for, right? That is why people turn to faith. Uh, and they're, they're finding other ways at the Motion Church, certainly, to make a difference. If you want to share your story about this and how you're feeling about this religious gathering situation, you can email me, simi at cknw.com, or call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. What is your place of worship doing in this time? Are they doing what the Motion Church does, or are you still gathering? Let me know what's going on. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the things that has made me feel better during this pandemic is reading the stories of the people who are just going above and beyond and doing amazing things, using this as an opportunity to help people around them. We're going to introduce you to somebody like that just now, actually. Uh, Caitlin Carter is with us. She's a mom in Chilliwack who is really going above and beyond. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. How many uh, trips do you have on your list today? Like what's on your agenda? Um, Well, I have a big shop coming up on uh, Thursday, and so far I have about 67 people this week. That's 67 people, Caitlin, for people who don't understand, that you are going to Costco for this week alone. Yes. Yeah, I go for anywhere from, my minimum is usually about 50, but the most I've ever done in a week is about 112 people. Holy moly. Okay, let's back this up. How did this get started? (laughs) How did you end up doing this? Uh, well, I was just planning on, like everyone else, um, thinking about braving Costco in the earlier days of the pandemic um, for myself. And I had uh, seen a lot of people post about their hesitation to go themselves uh, with the lineups, the shortages. Um, a lot didn't know if it was worth the trip. Um, I instantly thought of my mom group uh, that I'm in on Facebook. Uh, I can relate to them not wanting to bring their toddlers and their children, risking the exposure, let alone standing in the lineup with a potential screaming toddler. Uh, So I decided to post that I was going if anyone needed anything, and I'd be happy to pick some stuff up for them to save them the trip. Um, I was not at all expecting the response that I got. I had about 32 (laughs) orders right off the bat, and at the time that was overwhelming. I was like, I can't do this all in one day. So I split it up into two and then it just kind of kept going. Um, and I just felt good helping the community um, in such a strange time. Uh, people were so thankful that I could do this. So I just continued doing it. Um, eventually um, posting in other local groups around town to reach seniors, people with a uh, compromised immune systems or people who just didn't want to go themselves. I am in awe of what you do. So first of all, good job. Great job. Uh, Thank you. But can you explain to me the logistics of this? Because I have trouble navigating my own Costco shop, let alone, you know, for 67 people. Yeah, uh, it's, it was a learning process, how to kind of make it organized. Um, I post generally about three days on my Facebook page, um, just giving people some time to get their list ready. They send it over to me. I write it all down. Um, Once I've kind of got a rough draft of the list, I type it up and 
kind of make it all organized in there. I've got a Microsoft Excel sheet that okay. my husband made for me. And it, we put all the orders in. It's got a whole like thing to type in the numbers and add it all up for me so I don't have to do it from pen and paper like I did in the beginning. Um, yeah, and then I just I do the shopping. I message everybody back on Facebook with their total, and then they just e-transfer me or pay cash and come pick it up. Or I deliver it to them as well. Okay, but how many carts do you use? Like when you're there, how do you how do you do you go back and forth to the store? How do you do that? Yeah, I am I, um, usually I go. It takes me to do a shop. It usually takes me about three separate trips into Abbotsford, and each time I'm in Abbotsford, I go in and out of the store with one of their giant flat decks, about one to three times, filling my vehicle. So. Whoa. Okay. And at any point then, Caitlin, do you go, okay, I think I may have bitten off more than I could chew here. Uh, there are definitely days where I kind of go, oh, I don't know if this is going to fit, but um, every time it's fit in my car okay. I've never been stranded with too many groceries and yeah, I manage every time. Okay. Because I saw the pictures of your vehicle and it looks like you're paying Tetris when you come into the parking lot. Uh, it is like a game of Tetris. So. <laughs> Uh, tell me some of the stories of the people that you do this for. Um, I know that you've got parents who have children with immune, you know, compromised babies. Um, is that what helps you do this? Uh, yeah, I just, I want to help those people that can't go out. I mean, I'm overall a fairly healthy person. So me going out is better than, say, some of the seniors that I shop for. Um, one of my customers, her kid actually just had a kidney transplant. So them going out is like a big no-no right now. So it's, you know, people like that that I want to continue helping. And you don't you, you don't get paid for this, do you? Um, at the beginning, I did not charge anything because I knew money was tight, and I just I just wanted to help. Um, I never wanted to charge to begin with. Um, my group was actually the one to push me to charge. Like they just started yes. paying me themselves, um, <laughs> and so they voted in um, a small fee for people to pay to just help cover my cost of gas and the wear and tear on my vehicle, but. Wow. Um, yeah. I'm so impressed. And you did you lose your job in the pandemic too? Uh, yeah, I did. So uh, I was a server at uh, Town Hall in Abbotsford. Okay. And restaurants were shut down. So obviously I did not work. So I just was keeping myself busy. And I thought this would be a good way to do that. Amazing job you've been doing. Do you see yourself doing this indefinitely or at some point you're going to have to stop? Yeah. Uh, I'm probably going to keep going. Um, I've had a lot of people ask if even after the pandemic's over, if I'll continue doing this because they just like the convenience of not having to go themselves, just that half an hour drive. And Costco's busy as it is anyways, no kidding. So, even before the pandemic, right? And Well, you know what? Congratulations, Caitlin. We think you're doing an amazing job. And thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on Thursday. Thank you. Okay, that's Caitlin Carter, Chilliwack mom, Costco queen, she's called, fulfilling neighbors' orders for Costco this week. She's doing the shopping for 67 people. Wow.